interviewing the leading private equity executives and unlocking the secrets of success. Welcome to the Private Equity Podcast with Alex Rawlings. Welcome back to the Private Equity Podcast. Joining us today is Anthony DeCandido, a partner at RSM, providing advisory services to private equity firms. Welcome, Anthony, and thank you very much for joining us and sharing your insights. Good day, Alex. Thanks for having me. So, Anthony, for those of us who uh, are not aware of you, uh, could you give us a kind of a 60 to 90 second breakdown, please? Sure thing, Alex. So, yeah, my, my name is Anthony DeCandido, and I'm a financial services partner at RSM. I've focused on the private equity community for the better part of the last 15 years of my career. For those of you who are not familiar with the firm, RSM is uh, the leading provider to middle market advisory services. So the types of clientele that we serve generally in the billion dollar revenue category or below. And in the asset management space, it's generally the $10 billion asset managers and below. Um, Over the last few years, I've, I've taken a little bit of a change in my career where I've been focusing a lot more on the firm's industry strategy. And that covers all of the priority industries we serve from a service solution standpoint, which among them are, you know, healthcare, technology, consumer products, industrial products, real estate, and then where I sit, which is financial services. And in the role that I'm in in industry, I'm charged with driving a lot of our middle market thought leadership on a sector level. So again, being my specialization in private equity, focusing on a lot of our thought leadership, aligning myself to strategically important accounts. And assisting with, you know, some of the internal matters like growth teams and such. And through this role over the last few years in my research, one of the topics that has, you know, drawn a lot of passion within me has been the topic of ESG and sustainability. And what's been really neat over the last three years is the firm has uh, pinned me and and some others to try to drive our firm's uh, ESG advisory solutions, which has been really, really successful the last few years and something that I'm, I'm really looking forward to doing over the next few years. Well, let's jump into the ESG side, because I think that's a complicated position within private equity, whether it should be or shouldn't be. I think it is. It's a bit convoluted. People aren't sure what it exactly means to the the private equity world and what the kind of P firms. So how are you helping them understand their requirements and understanding what they need to do from an ESG perspective? Yeah, and you're you're right, Alex. I think at the moment, there's still a lot of confusion with the marketplace, you know, without having a universal mandate for reporting, companies first struggle with how to align themselves to financial reporting framework. Groups also struggle with the concept around, you know, whether or not the exercise is integrating to organizational strategy or simply a risk or a compliance exercise. And depending upon what that triggering event is of why a company might be interested to implement ESG, may drive that. So many times in, in this space in private equity, that comes from investor inquiries or questions. You know, it, it comes in the way of trying to attract new rounds of, of financing or capital for marketing and communications purposes. So depending upon, you know, the goals of that company generally may dictate what level of exercise they put around ESG and, and whether it ultimately becomes uh, organizational strategy or simply risk. Makes sense. Makes sense. And what one mistake do you see private equity firms or their portfolio companies making from your advisory services perspective? I think the biggest mistake is a is a firm believing that they 
can play as generalists when they don't necessarily have that sector level expertise across their whole portfolio. I, I think, you know, societally we're moving towards much more specialization in all facets, you know, of, of the business environment. And I think the intricacies of running a business in a particular sector, they vary so tremendously from one to another. I mean, this, this has been only exasperated do, during the health pandemic where, you know, certain industries like say retail or hospitality or real estate you know, the problems that those groups are facing are entirely different than say they might be if they were financial services oriented. So I, I think it's really important in my mind that, you know, for those who are you know seeking private equity as an alternative investment, that they do so understanding what are the core competencies of that GP group. So that's one area. And then, you know, going back to some of the conversation we've already had around ESG, you know, I, I still see an overwhelming number of P firms who approach ESG as a risk exercise. They don't necessarily look at it as an opportunity to integrate some of those pro-societal behaviors within their own firm's strategy. And I think there's been a lot of press around the topic of greenwashing over the last few weeks, and really for good reason, because there still are too many firms that initiate ESG for more self-serving purposes, like I said earlier, for marketing and fundraising, instead of doing so as a chance to drive better business results and better business decisions. Interesting. So so with regards to ESG, what recommendations would you make for firms when they're looking at how they how they tackle it? What recommendations would you make for them to look at, right? These would be the areas to look at. This would be the, the space. This is where we start. Yeah, I mean, I think for starters, you need to evaluate what level of organizational support you have for the cause. I mean, if this is something you want to do in a silo in a business unit, it may not get the level of traction that it would require. So usually the clientele that we serve is at, at the utmost leadership levels and, and sometimes even at the board level. So think of you know, board chairs, CEOs, CFOs, COOs. You know, these are people who are driving organizational strategy. So for starters, it's this concept of making sure that you've got that level of buy-in. You know, number two is, I think, trying to find some quick wins, things that you know will show up in your scorecard that you can demonstrate have, have driven better organizational outcomes, whether it's financial or non-financial. And then, you know, lastly is making sure that you create some level of cadence for benchmarking, because what you can't, what you don't measure, you can't evaluate. And so if you have the ability to see trend lines between how your company is performing First, initially, I think that has value that holds mustard, but then even better is over time being able to evaluate some of those metrics to the outside. Could be a private equity group that's similarly specialized in healthcare, or it could be a private equity group that's similar, similarly specialized in consumers. However, you might want to evaluate that whoever you view as your peers, there's a lot of value in doing that benchmarking exercise. Okay, that makes sense. And then driving into that, looking at the, we would talk about the kind of KPI world. Is there any kind of examples of areas that you would suggest that they look at on the KPI side? Is there, look, these are, you know, top three or, you know, here's one for for an example perspective? Yeah, I, I think that's a good question. Um, you know, we spent a lot of time when we were developing our business around, you know, what are the ESG essentials, for lack of a better term. So whether you're a healthcare company or you're a consumer products company or anything in between, you know, what are the things that every organization, regardless of sector, needs to focus on? And I think by no surprise, you know, number one is probably climate, climate change. Number two is likely diversity and inclusion, you know, it's showing up in, in every types of businesses. And then I think there's also 
you know, an interest around certain like energy usage and efficiency. And, and I think those, because most organizations have some type of facility or office footprint. So whether you're a large scale employer or a small scale employer, I think uh, all, all those things matter. And, and I think it's an interesting one because we look, we talk about ESG both in the portfolio side and how, you know, making sustainable type investments and, and everything else that goes with that. But also, I think, you know, as, as we look at, we're both on the same side of the table as a private equity firm. We are a services business. We are not making and producing something. You know, we have a group of collective individuals that offer, you know, from a private equity perspective, acquisitional and then growth and development of businesses and to, through to exit. We're actually producing something. So I think mean, sometimes it can be difficult. And I was on a recent kind of L&D type focused webinar recently. And, and one of my key questions was, you know, I run an office. How do I make an impact? You know, we've got a, a recycling bin for consideration from there. But looking at the actual private equity firms themselves, what recommendations would you make for them to kind of tick more of the boxes in an office environment? Or, you know, equally, what has RSM done to, to kind of tick that off firm for, the, for, for you guys personally? Yeah, I mean, right, right now there's, um, you know, very, very high unemployment within the U.S. And so I think for starters, private equity can be, can shine very bright in just in terms of generating more jobs, you know, based upon the capital that they're deploying. But then also to demonstrate that private equity investment drives economic development. And that could be by geography, that could be in certain sectors or you name it. But, you know, some of the the myths around private equity in the past around you know, over leveraging companies to drive distributions out to LPs is is really false and it's grossly misleading. So I, I think given where we are with this global health pandemic, I actually see private equity as being that lifeline for a lot of uh, those portfolio companies that need help. And, and just maybe they're able to shine a brighter light on this the alternative investments asset class, knowing that you know, they can spur a lot of jobs and spur a lot of economic development. I agree. I, I think, um, you know, there's, there's good and bad within any industry, but particularly within private equity and the opportunity that brings the, the driving of local economies, the change um, of, uh, uh, of businesses uh, for, the, for the better, the amalgamation of companies together to be stronger, to be better, to provide more jobs, to fuel local economies. I think it's um, it's definitely a fantastic industry to be in, and I appreciate every industry has its bad, and you know scenarios do happen where businesses don't succeed, but you know the considerably outweighs what happens negatively within business in general. And, you know, you look at private industry outside of private equity, you know, businesses go under, things don't work out. Um, and uh, that'd be an interesting correlation, actually. I don't know that how, you know, the success of businesses in normal private business versus private equity is a similar model with similar revenues. Otherwise, you know, I'm sure startups go under all the uh, all the time. But that's more, that's certainly more, more VC. Looking at that, you know, I, I love that, certainly that element of, of private equity. What, what do you love about the private equity industry and equally what do you hate and if hate's too much of a strong word what do you uh, what do you dislike I, I think for starters i love being surrounded by some of the you know business climate's top minds you know and i think the community has a very rich educational background it, it's a sector that keeps an incredible pace it's very competitive it's a result-oriented businesses so i think you know expectations are high and things tend to move quickly so that i think that's probably you know, the most favorable piece of it on the flip side, you know, there's, there's still a lot of people in the industry that lack humility. I, I have to be careful saying that. And so, you know, I think with, with these gifts of being such curious and 
you know, thoughtful mind sometimes comes at a cost of, of lacking that level of humility that I see in certain other industries. But having said all that, I think the net result is still very positive. So don't, don't get me wrong on uh, on those comments. No, and I think that's that's a general um, uh, consensus. Of what we get, there is some that lack that humility. But private equity is the, in my per- perception, is the higher echelons of uh, of business. It's very competitive. The C suite side's very, you know, the top people in their game are at the the portfolio C suite end. And when it comes down to the investors, you know, they have to be good. They have to be great to be able to do it. It's it's a very flooded market and continuing to, you know, there's new private equity firms popping up all the time at the moment. So we'll see how that, that continues. But, you know, it is a very, you know, it's a very well-paid, therefore financials is higher, therefore, therefore um, you know, expectations is even higher of the people that come into it. So I can understand right. why there is a little bit of that. But I do think there's a lot more humility definitely coming into what people do. And I think the days of, you know, private equity investors thinking that they can run the portfolio companies better than their their portfolio execs is 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 hopefully long gone. Anyway, from my perspective, it's a lot more hands off and more supported rather than we're going to tell you how to run a, a business and we want you to be the chief exec, but we'll uh, we'll run it for you. So it's definitely a bit right. of change from uh, yeah, that's fair. Supportive now collaborative, right? I mean, that's probably the winning recipe for a private equity strategy. I think there's been so many new, and I think that's been driven a lot by the new private equity firms coming in, of uh, driving that tra- change and, and seeing that. And a lot of what we see in venture tends to push through into to PE, and also a lot of what we see in America tends to uh, then come over to Europe, uh, such as you know operating partners, as we call them over here, portfolio directors. Uh, you see more and more of that coming across, whereas it's, it's fairly common, if not mostly common, for private equity firms of a uh, reasonable size to have uh, someone in that uh, in that mold. What are your um, what are your perceptions or what are your beliefs with regards to the kind of three attributes that that make a person uh, a top performer? Ooh, uh, I think number one is you know committing to a lifetime of learning. You know, so there's uh, I mean I know the field that I'm in that's especially true. I mean, there's uh, continuing professional education, there's opportunities to do executive education, uh, there's chances to learn from our clients, from our own colleagues. So I think that's probably number one. I think being able to always demonstrate a level of humility, right, is, you know, the emotional side of the business and caring for our people, doing right by them. I think all those things show up and they, and they matter, you know, in terms of driving a good workforce. And then I think lastly is this idea of, taking measured bets and being courageous, you know, seeing windows of opportunity, because in my 15, 16 year career, you know, there's various varying scenarios where windows of opportunity could be larger, they can be smaller. And and I think when those opportunities are large, you, you need to capitalize and you have to be astute enough and, and courageous enough to, um, to seize them. You met and self-development, I completely agree. And that's probably one of the more common mentions here. So uh, definitely a, a key trait. How, where do you get your your personal influences from? You mentioned CPD, you mentioned personal development being a requirement within your role, but where do you get your influences from to continue that CPD and self-learning? Yeah, I, I think I've, in professionally, it's really this analyst community that I'm a part of. So when I started this program uh, three years ago, the whole concept around it was to really disrupt the way in which we run our business and our industry strategy and to further, um, you know, drive these middle market, you know, data-driven insights. And, you know, the, the community that I'm a part of, which is led by our chief economist, and our deputy economist, I mean, these are just very, very bright minds have really pushed us to think outside the box from our traditional roles, in my case, coming from 
financial reporting. So really the, the community I'm a part of is a very motivated community. They keep a great pace. And, and so I've been able to learn a great deal just having worked with these 30 or so professionals within our firm. Excellent, excellent. And I was looking at your LinkedIn and uh, that, that your role kind of states as economic, business and technology trends and reviewing that. What do you see as the major trends within the private equity industry right now? Yeah, I think number one is still historically low interest rates. I mean, I think they're picking up over the last month or two as um, you know, the economy is turning around. But we're still in a period where there's a significant level of distressed assets within you know the overall economic climate. So, you know, think particularly in real estate or retail or hospitality. I mean, these these businesses are just beginning to come around, but are still struggled. And so I think, um, you know, the level of buying opportunity over the next year to 18 months, I think will be high. We'll see what happens with valuations. But nonetheless, again, you know, I think private equity plays a big role in our, in a hopeful economic recovery. Yeah, you know, we've been following very closely what's happening around SPAC fundraising. I mean, you've, you've probably seen the data. I think there was something like $59 billion of fundraised SPACs in 19, and then it grew to around 250 in 2020. You know, in, in the first quarter of 21, that number is well past last year, and it, it neared somewhere around like $300 billion or so. And I think, um, you know, what's neat about the SPAC uh, community is that even if some of the GPs that are running these SPAC exits select another exit route, the, the SPAC's highest bids do tend to boost the exit price. But on the other side of the equation, you know, many of these firms are still concerned that the SPAC boom, boom may cause them to either lose out on a deal or even force them to overpay to win at auction, which could, in theory, dampen the return. So, you know, what, what I've been following over the last few days now is, um, you know, the SEC just announced that a number of SPACs have misclassified their warrants sold in these IPOs. And they classified it as equity rather than a liability. So what that really means for the broader business community is that um, your regulators are really keeping a watchful eye. And you saw that just in the data set from this last week, because the number of blank check IPOs have essentially come to a halt over the last week or so following this SEC position that was taken. So this back thing is, is very exciting, you know, whether or not it's got legs to last Another year, two years from now is to be seen. I, I see both sides. You know, a lot of our clients pull us on what we see in the way of regulation and taxes. And there's been a development over the last 18 months or so that I've been following a close eye on, which is, you know, some of the um, the bills that have been suggested by Senator Elizabeth Warren around, you know, her beliefs that these private equity groups are over leveraging portfolio companies as ways of you know, distributing rich profits up to the fund and then consequently out to the investors. I think that's mostly overplayed. But what could be interesting to see how it all plays out if this stigma remains around private equity and what their intentions are and how they either drive economic results or they, um, you know, just drive rich, you know, rich returns in their own pockets. I think it creates a level of, you know, division within the market where, you know, you never know whether or not there could be um, any steam taken to some of these wealth taxes that she's been proposing. So we're, we're following that very closely. A lot of our clients are curious about that. I don't see that we there's anything like imminent in the pipeline that way, but who knows, you know, as politics play a bigger role in, in private equity. Yeah, I, I think another topic that we've been following too, and this has gone for the last two years now or so, is is just these funds' uses of leverage. So many of our clients today take you know, lines of credit out, they uh, collateralize their commitments from LPs, 
and they can take, you know, loans of, you know, 200, 300 million dollars or more. And, and what they do in many times is they're, they're sourcing deals and they're financing the deals by virtue of these uh, lines of credits instead of drawing capital from the investors themselves. And one of the things that the SEC has been especially interested in that way is, you know, whether or not these funds are doing so just for convenience because they have access to it, or are they doing it because it drives superior uh, investment returns? And I think the, the regulators are taking even a more watchful eye in scenarios where these funds might be beginning a fundraise process, or they have, you know, uh, you know, certain IRR targets that they have not achieved. So there's there's a lot of question marks as to like the viability of, of those those practices and then what's the end outcome in the way of driving valid returns. So ultimately I think we're we're probably going to move towards a scenario where there's going to be requirements for additional disclosure that way. I mean these these lines of credits are already disclosed within audited financial statements, but whether or not there's anything additional that has to be disclosed in the way of the arithmetic of those numbers is to be seen. We spoke plenty about ESG, but you know, just one added comment to make there is I, I think you know the the ideas of digitalization actually does play a big role in asset management, broadly speaking, in particular private equity. If you just compare the hedge funds to the private equity funds over the last three years, I'd say the hedge funds were probably further along in terms of digitalizing data, in terms of making better informed business decisions, whereas the private equity analysts played more of a traditional role, you know, overseeing the companies visiting on-premise when they're able to, you know, heavy spreadsheet type of business, you know, weekly reports and that kind of thing. And and more and more, we're seeing companies evaluate businesses and make in, informed business decisions by way of better data sets. So many of our clients today are asking for help around dashboarding. So said another way, you go into a business and you evaluate their systems and their ability to generate good information how that gets organized properly, and ultimately how that gets measured and benchmarked. So there's a lot of project work happening in that way, and especially more than there was even a year or two ago in that way. So so those, to me, are probably some of the overarching themes in private equity that were followed closely over the last few months. What, what do you think? Because the this black industry is something that's kind of, well, it's been around for a long time, and I've spoken to individuals, but, it, but I've never seen it played so much as a kind of more mainstream type alternative way of acquiring businesses and, and going about it. So what, what do you think has driven the, the kind of the SPAC option to, to become more and more popular? Yeah, I, I think it's a bit more nimble, right? So you're, you're essentially investing in the management team themselves and you're saying, here's X amount of dollars, go find the deal. And if the deal is not consummated, you know, the SPAC effectively dissolves and, and, and no harm, no foul. So I think there is a, an alert to that. You know, there is regulations in it. I just spoke to some of the risks that we're observing the last week. But compared to a traditional IPO, it's probably still far less in the way of regulation. So when you consider those two things coupled with the fact that there's been some very meaningful uh, SPAC IPO exits observed in the market and the level of returns that these funds have made, I think has made it uh, far more attractive this past year than it even was the previous year. And on the on the dashboard side, we see a lot of, if I look at a lot of the searches that we'll do on the portfolio end, and it's all about, you know, have they got the toolkit, have they got the, the ability to bring in and, and implement KPIs and systems and processes? 
What, what are you seeing kind of more in depth on, on that side that maybe the private equity firms are missing? When we say dashboard, um, I kind of say, look, yeah. these guys are really heavy on Excel spreadsheets. Well, hopefully not Excel spreadsheets, just in the most. But, yeah. you know, if we think if we think of it that way, loads of Excel spreadsheets, load of data, load of review. What, what do you kind of see of them the missing that, that builds out this, you know, as you said, at the dashboard? Yeah, so that's a great question. I've, I spent a lot of time thinking about this because you can't take anything away from the analyst work that the PE professionals have done for, you know, for decades. I mean, they've, they've been onto this well before any of the service providers have been. But I, if I were to evaluate the one missing link in all this is probably the use of alternative data. You know, I think they've got the um, traditional data down pat, but alternative data presents other themes. You know, I mean, if you just consider... I drove into my office from home this morning and what used to was typically a 28 minute commute is now trending towards 35 minutes and closer to 40 minutes. And what that means is there's a little bit more of a traffic flow, which is great. It means people are going to back to work. Things are, are opening up a little bit. That's just a very simple piece of anecdotal evidence. But, but what if instead you were able to track the traffic flow from I-95 in Connecticut to New York City as a means of um, determining the level of consumption in restaurants in New York City, or similarly, if you would evaluate, you know, the the ridership of people taking trains in around New York City, or evaluating um, reservations taken at open table, right? I mean, these are just entirely different ways of evaluating information of of making better and informed business decisions. No, makes sense. Makes sense. It's bringing things, uh, bringing in alternative data to put everything together um, to build a, uh, to certainly build a stronger picture there. And then I guess, you know, the, on the other side, if you would say, well, what's preventing these firms to do so? I think there's such an abundance of data sets that any one firm could consume and it, it does get quite costly. Some of the ones I referenced, you could obtain online and they're, they're free, but when you really get deep into this, you know, there's companies that are making a career just sourcing this data for other firms for them to to evaluate. So I guess that's the part that in an active active ownership model, you know, where do you draw the line of of, of getting to a point where you, know, you have enough versus you have an abundance of it? And you know, you could evaluate data all day long, and until you make a decision, then you know that you don't show up in your dashboard either way. So I think there probably is a healthy balance needed between having enough and having too much. Well, yes, just knowing when uh, when that would be and uh, uh, when you've got the right right information and where the uh, where the data's come from. I suppose that's, you know, is a collection of everything that you can see, being able to make an effective call and good judgment at that time with the information certainly available. So, Anthony, if anybody wanted to, to reach out to you or get in contact, how best do they reach out? Yeah, I think I'm a very active LinkedIn user, so you feel free to welcome to to peruse my uh, profile there, Anthony DeCandido. And aside from that, people are able to connect with me by email. You know, I am very active in the market in terms of these types of programs, panels, presentations. So, and if you're ever in around New York City, I think we're all looking for ways to to re-engage in person soon anyway. So that'll be nice also. Absolutely, to meet with people properly again and uh, uh, not end Zoom, but uh, reduce down and make a human interaction. I think we're all, uh, all definitely uh, definitely gunning for that. So, well, look, Anthony, thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate your insight and, uh, and sharing everything you have done today. Yeah, my pleasure, Alex. Thanks so much for having me. And as always, thank you very much for, for everyone listening, for joining us. And of course, should you ever need support with private equity professionals, 
or portfolio executive hiring, then please do reach out to me at Raw Selection here. And of course, if you are listening in, please do subscribe and you will get notified of our next podcast released every two weeks here. But till the next time, keep smashing it. And thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Private Equity Podcast on www.raw-selection.com.